sleeper must awake. DIY. Do it yourself. Do it yourself, man. <laughs> That's the way to go. Sorry about that. But certainly, um, it has been the way to go for me, and still is. Um, and apparently, I'm not the only one, because those three letters, they are mentioned a lot in today's show. Uh, and it came kind of came as a, a surprise. Um, I guess I should have, you know, like, guessed that uh, today's guest <laughs> would be into uh, that philosophy or that spirit of DIY because of uh, this person's uh, history. But yeah, I didn't know that we'd connect on that point so much and we'd uh, expand on it in the in a way that I've been uh, I've been hoping you know to find people with this this same um, um, view of, of this spirit when it comes to yeah spiritual development <laughs> consciousness expansion <laughs> for me DIY is the way to go and uh, it feels like uh, in many ways um, today's guest Ronnie Pontiac would agree <laughs> so it's still me Dominique Valley, host of this show Hopscotch Chronicles today's episode 13 yeah I loved our discussion um, it kind of it kind of grew from a more terrestrial more concrete uh, subjects and then kind of moved and morphed into more mystical things if you want to call it that or more from the terrestrial to the celestial <laughs> yeah, we start by talking about, you know, music and uh, documentaries because Ronnie's a um, um, filmmaker. And then, yeah, we just moved towards the, the mysteries. <laughs> I hope you stick uh, to the end. Uh, for that one and there's another thing that Ronnie mentioned uh, at one point and that really uh, resonated with me because he mentioned that on this uh, path of spirituality of spiritual development um, that playfulness is is an, a very important attitude and it's something I've, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to uh, explain to people and to encourage people to take playfulness seriously which seems kind of 
paradoxical or, you know. <laughs> um, actually, if you think about it, it's kind of uh, that idea that's behind the this show's name. I won't say too much about that for now. And I will, uh, rather, I will uh, move on and read <laughs> today's guest's bio that I concocted. All right. So, Ronnie Pontiac is a writer, a musician, and documentary producer currently residing in Los Angeles. He is known, among other things, for having been the personal research assistant and designated substitute lecturer for the well-known author, lecturer, and mystic Manly P. Hall. He has written many articles for several esoteric magazines and is also the author of American Metaphysical Religion, as well as, more recently, The Magic of the Orphic Ims, co-authored with his wife Tamra Lucid. Additionally, Ronnie and Tamra are the founding members of experimental rock band Lucid Nation, still active since its formation in the 90s. There you go. So, that might be, uh, maybe it'll be a, a, a record today. For the shortest intro <laughs> uh, but I mean I guess I can't really move on without saying the obvious things that we have to remind people to do which are you know you know them you've guessed them like if you're on YouTube subscribe to the show we're at we're we're, we're at um, uh, 80 I think 80 79 80 uh, subscribers. Oh, I wanted to, yeah. I want to thank everyone so far who have been following the show. I mean, it's not a, like a huge crowd, but I don't care. I'm happy that you're here and I, it really, it's really touching for me that you're subscribing and you're liking the episodes and you're leaving Basically, only good comments so far. I, I'm my mind is blown, and I'm really happy and about that. And I want to express my gratitude. So, there you go. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you like this show, the episode, subscribe, like, comment, uh, all that stuff. All right, that's enough. Seven minutes. Let's move on with the interview with today's guest, Ronnie Pontiac. Enjoy! <laughs> the portal has opened. <laughs> Welcome, Ronnie Pontiac. I'm super psyched to uh, be speaking with you today. Thank you, Dominic. I'm happy to be here. So, again, thank you for being here. Uh, I was, as I was telling you before, uh, 
we started recording, I, I watched uh, your, your Golden Flower presentation on New Thinking Aloud, and it was just wild. So, of course, if we can get into that uh, a bit today, it would be cool. Okay. Uh, and for people who haven't seen that, I'm going to link in the, in the show notes anyways. Okay. Um, but also, um, I'd like to, if you don't mind, get into a bit more of your personal experience in spirituality as a whole. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of, um, out there about history and And of course, I don't mind going there either. And I know that it's such a big part of your your experience. Um, for me, the this mystical path, if we want to call it that, is uh, better viewed through one's personal lens. So I'm always curious about uh, how you know, this process has been operating in, in the, in my guests, uh, life as well as their work on a more, not superficial, but you know what I mean? Like, um, a more practical, uh, or technical level or historical in your case. Um, so maybe we could start with, for people who don't know you, maybe just quick overview of what you do, uh, the kind of work that you do. I know it's a lot, but just maybe a, a, a quick, uh, a quick overview, if you don't mind. <laughs> I'm so bad at this, uh, this particular thing about <laughs> talking about my, myself and what I do is, um, is something that I'd never feel comfortable about, but I'm, let's see. Um, I was somebody who worked with Manley Palmer Hall for seven years as his research assistant. And I also worked as his screener and I became his designated substitute lecturer. That kind of was the most uh, intensive time for me in terms of encountering different forms of spiritual practice. And it was uh, my really my introduction to that world. After that, I went back into the world of music from which I had come. Um, I had been transformed. I'd, before I was at uh, PRS with Manley Hall, uh, my experience in music involved a very violent band that I fronted uh, that was kind of racist. And uh, we had like biker security guards and uh, we were, I was a nihilist and a criminal and It was just about as negative as it could be. And after PRS, I was trying to do something positive through music. It was interesting that I wound up in, in Riot Girl in, a, in one of the few bands that was overtly Riot Girl uh, during the Riot Girl days, Lucid Nation, uh, led by Tamara, who had been with me all through the Manly Hall stuff and has written a, a book about our experiences there that is poignant and hilarious, usually at my expense. And <laughs> this is a, uh, a movement that was so opposite from who I had been. It was, but it was also a, a mystery school for me because I, I was allowed to uh, understand just what women do go through uh, or went through in the 1990s. Mm -hmm 
in our society and still do. And, and so I was in that band for a while. We weren't always a riot girl band. Uh, we, we morphed into all kinds of different things because we were uh, very driven by exploration and by improvisation, uh, lyrically and musically. Uh, we, we kind of did a band of gypsies thing where whichever interesting musicians were available and wanted to play with us, we would play live with or record with. And that enabled us to play with some amazing people uh, like Patty Schemmel of Hole and uh, like Larry Schemmel of uh, Death Valley Girls and um, incredible drummers like uh, Ken Shock of Candiria and Tia Sprocket who drummed with Ministry and just all kinds of great people. So mm-hmm. we were a DIY band the whole time, even though we had friends who were in the industry and there were attempts made to sign us, but we we never allowed ourselves to enter that world. And and we also mm-hmm. together produced documentaries. At, we've done about five or six of them. Um, one about Mia Zapata and the Gits, her murder, and this amazing band that never happened because of that. And about mm-hmm. Los Aldeanos, an incredible Cuban hip-hop duo who were illegal. They couldn't play live gigs and they couldn't, uh, you couldn't even listen to their music. It was that illegal. It was banned, but yet they would have these secret concerts and everybody who came to them knew their lyrics, just an incredible uh, moment there in terms of the power of hip hop to galvanize uh, a realization among people uh, about the freedom Mm -hmm. that they, that they want. And, and then became a writer and have published a couple of books um, in the last year through inner traditions. One of them is called American Metaphysical Religion, and the other is called The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, which I co-authored. And and so, yeah, that's, that, that's enough embarrassment. That's, wow. I mean, that's perfect. That's, uh, I mean, a lot of people are going to come to hear you speak. Uh, rather than me, because they don't me they don't know me yet. <laughs> but I think uh, that was great. That was great, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable. You don't have to say anything that you don't want to say. By okay. The way. <laughs> so, um, but one thing that um, that that kind of sparks that perks my ears when I hear uh, DIY. That's something I always because that's something I really identify with. And it feels like uh, maybe at least chronologically, uh, maybe we have a like an um, upside down or um, experience because it feels like you um, the Manly P Hall days for you were before you started. Um, no, you did have a rock band before, so you did do music before, right? But the DIY thing, the more more of the punk thing, was that before or after um, Manly P. Hall? Well, before it it wasn't really it, it it wasn't idealistic in the sense of DIY. And before mm-hmm. it was a contempt for the business and and for people in general. So there was an mm-hmm. attitude of extreme independence around the band. And we were extremely rude to anyone who was from a record company who approached us because we had a huge following, I'm sorry to say. 
that was very excited about us. And, and there were those mm -hmm. who thought, you know, well, this could be something profitable, but we were briefly, fortunately it didn't last very long. Um, it really was this very dangerous situation for everybody involved, but it was mm -hmm. something that, that taught me how much you could accomplish that you could do quite a bit, just getting together the people who like your music and and the friends of friends kind of thing and you could really make it work if you were bringing something that people were responding to i think that stuck with me but excuse me but manly hall was also an incredible example of diy he's publishing all those books himself he's publishing the journal he's got this center where he goes and works every day but he's also got events going on at night and on the weekends mm -hmm. and and so he really demonstrated how to be DIY. And I, don't, I never saw anyone, I don't think, do it better. Uh, really just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And incorporating volunteers. And I mean, there were people that worked there, like the librarian when I was there, Pearl. She was uh, someone who was at that point quite elderly, but she had been there, coming there to PRS with her mom since she was something like 12 years old. And she ultimately grew up to be the head librarian. Mm -hmm. And she was a really delightful, amazing, intelligent woman. The first person who ever suggested that I lecture and kind of forced me into it, pushed me into it. Um, so mm -hmm. that, that was a great example of DIY. And then my band kind of happened. It was another, I can't say my band. You can't say Riot Girl band and call it your band when you're <laughs> the boy in the band. That's just wrong. <laughs> um, it was Tamara and Debbie's band really. And, and they, mm -hmm. they had this incredible trajectory like Riot Girl did. Uh, and such, such, it was just exhilarating because everything, the feeling was that everything had been done in rock and punk and metal and guys had said everything that a guy could possibly say and, and what mm -hmm. more was left to be said. Well, the women had never really said anything. And in Riot Girl, no matter how primitive the music was, deliberately so, because it was anti-technique, the the words, mm -hmm. oh my God, the zines. I mean, they, they were so many brilliant writers and many of them did grow up to be writers, uh, including Tamara. And they yeah. they really gave you this vision of of life from their point of view that was, it was almost like what, what the music was meant to get across. At least that's how it felt to me. And it was the missing half mm -hmm. of my understanding. And I kept running into things like Alephus Levi has this quote. Um, he's this Parisian magus that influenced Crowley a lot. Um, he said that the that gender is like an electric current. And that if you, if you don't have it in balance, it becomes dangerous. Only when it's balanced mm -hmm. is it not destructive. It, it becomes constructive. And I, I kept running into these, even uh, some quotes from Manly Hall where he was talking about something similar. And, and in Riot Girl, I thought I'd found this, this balancing factor for the gender current. It, it was, and it did transform thousands at least of, of lives including mine. So yeah. that was an amazing experience and all DIY. I mean, these, they taught us how to be your own label, how to have your own clubs, how to tour simply by getting online, which back then was America online and contacting your bands 
your friends who were in bands in other cities, contacting your fans in other cities and just putting the word out there. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is a riot girl band. We're coming out. We're going to do a national tour. Where can we play? Where can we stay? And you never had to do anything corporate. You didn't have to play one corporate club. It was all in all ages scene, which was amazing, but it was soon doomed mm-hmm. and very deliberately, I think. Uh, just because of how it happened everywhere at once. Uh, like it was orchestrated and they kind of knocked out the minor leagues of, of the music because these young bands no longer uh, had places to play and they didn't have that kind of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So in the DIY scene that I knew in East LA, there was this, th- it was so amazing because when you're in there, you see this band like spit boy, let's say, or heavens to Betsy. And, and then when they're done, all the kids sit down on the floor and start reading each other's zines. I mean, like reading between, <laughs> wow. between sets, you know, <laughs> and, um, and then there were just amazing artistic things going on around you and a uh, tarot reader in the back and, and everything was so uh, pro female. And so, so like, go ahead and say what you're feeling. You know, don't, it doesn't matter if you're not a brilliant musician. You don't have to show off. You don't have to do leads. You just have to use the mm-hmm. instrument to express what you're feeling and tell the truth about it. And it was, it, it was yeah. really incredible. A lot of life transforming experiences occurred at those shows. And, uh, and that wasn't even mm-hmm. the best scene that we encountered in Riot Girl. We were in another scene in Orange County that was run by the anarcho punks by a guy named peace punk. And they had a lot of black Panther performers and speakers at the shows. And, and it was a mix of like riot girl, anarcho punk and black Panther. And it was, wow. I learned a lot from everybody there. (laughs) It was in a tremendous sense of community and all again, DIY with a food, not bombs branch there at Coos cafe uh, that would go after mm-hmm. shows, you know, like the bands would work in the kitchen and then after the show, all the food would go to the park and, and people would be fed. So all mm-hmm. that DIY stuff also went into the films. Most of the films that we worked on were done by, by kind of maverick directors who often at great personal risk, uh, went out there and, and got film and they went out there indie. Sometimes we were lucky and we got help. Like for one film, we got help from uh, Edward James Olmos, who came on as an executive producer and narrator. It was about Zona Norte, mm-hmm. about how uh, Obama had shipped a lot of kids who uh, had not been born in America or who had never been given citizenship papers because their parents never bothered to apply and who suddenly found themselves mm-hmm. on the wrong side of immigration and were shipped out. And Mexico didn't want them because they had nowhere to go in Mexico. They had no relatives. And they wound up living in the sewers uh, near Tijuana in this place called Zona Norte that the cartels ran. And it, it, the guy was risking his life filming the thing. And it was really tremendous, heartbreaking stories. Uh, and it helped eventually get those people out of there uh, which is even more amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've been DIY all along. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's even more than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's 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 great. I mean, because uh, it feels it it feels to me like this. Uh, I don't know, 
should I don't know if I should call it an attitude or uh, a philosophy or just a way of doing things um, really helps uh, preserve the um, the authenticity and the integrity of the work and the people involved and uh, I think um, well obviously from what you you've you've uh, all the things you mentioned you know like we see that great things can be done even though they it's not necessarily like the bands and the movies that are gonna get you know and the news in the news or at the oscars or still like there's some some of that will leak into that culture too but um i wonder sometimes you know like how maybe films like the ones you've done have changed more than i don't know like any marvel thing that comes out you know like well it, what it, does it, it actually do for people right know? Well, I think, I mean, there are, a good example is a film actually that I didn't work on, but Tamara did. Um, she was an associate producer on a film about the women who were the leaders of the Standing Rock protest. It was called End of the mm -hmm. Line, The Women of Standing Rock by this amazing director, uh, Shannon Kring, and a mostly female crew. And this was another film where they were filming at great risk because Shannon was was behind the lines. Uh, she was staying uh, in in the protest with the protesters and was friends with the water protectors uh, uh, and became friends with the leaders. That's how she was able to do the film. Mm -hmm. And but she was also able to get behind the police lines and she was filming back there, too. So when she was filming during the the, uh, the kind of attacks that occurred, when law enforcement went after these peaceful protesters, she often found herself in the middle of it. And, mm -hmm. and it was a terrifying situation. It's a great bravery to make this film. Now, the film did get out there. It got a lot of uh, traction at festivals, but also it was shown at universities. And uh, there were many, many uh, screenings of it around the country, but also uh, screenings around the world. Uh, that happened, but it wasn't mm -hmm. certainly uh, like, you know, one of the big documentaries that everybody knows about, even though it was nominated in 2022 or 2023, I think it was 2022 for an Emmy uh, for the TV mm -hmm. version of it. And it was uh, broadcast through some of the bigger services like Peacock and uh, Al Jazeera Witness and uh, I think uh, Roku's got it, I think right now. And so that film is a good example because it was truly DIY. Uh, Hollywood was very hostile to it. Uh, she, the director had a hard time raising the funds. A lot of it was done by crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of volunteer work, people working for almost nothing, doing their jobs because they wanted this story told. And although it, it isn't a household name, it became a platform for the women that it's about. And they went out and the film documents this in the, the last version of it. They went out and they went to the UN, they went to various nations. Um, they 
really were advocating for divestment from oil investment from these huge powers. Mm -hmm. And they orchestrated a trillion dollars in divestment from these companies and nations. And uh, that's, Mm -hmm. That's the kind of power. Now, that's a DIY kind of thing that uh, that really had unforeseen results. And that's how they seem to be, in my experience. Um, that's part of the fun about it. It isn't a system where you produce product. And I'm not putting that down. I mean, I mean Hollywood and filmmaking in general, professional filmmaking, uh, is, a, is an amazing art. And it's yeah. done the way it's done for for reasons. That's that, you know I I understand that side of it too. It's it's what being professional requires, but you see it leaves out what DIY allows to flourish. So for example, um, directors who would never last a minute in the Hollywood system, like sort of you know renegade mm-hmm. visionary directors like the guy who went down to Tijuana to film for. Uh, that film is called uh, um, Exile Nation, uh, The Plastic People, because they were called The Plastic People in Mexico. Um, that guy could mm-hmm. never have done a film in Hollywood. He was a, a, a total renegade, and, and but only a guy like that could get that footage and have the connections to make a film like that and have the courage to make a film yeah. like that during the time when you know, Obama was not to be criticized by progressives and he was a progressive, but, but he felt that this Mm -hmm. had to be told that this was a a terrible mistake that had been made. And it was revealing that this president wasn't as different as people were hoping. And so you get, you give opportunities through DIY to people who might never have a chance to have their, their work recorded for posterity. And I think that's, that's a big, attraction to me for it and and the rides that those projects unleash are are just so amazing um, because they exist Mm -hmm. outside this uh regimented system of business and production and so a lot of the time the editors are working in their bedrooms on their their i imax or uh just you know, there's no no offices involved and no uh, lawyers. There's a lot of handshakes and and trust because it's a community. And so, yeah, it's a completely different experience. And and it does allow influence on society. It can be huge, like a trillion dollars in divestment, or it can be humble and just affect a handful of people. But for those handful of people, it can be life changing. Yeah. I guess that's why it's connected so much to the punk movement uh, movement also because uh, and I don't know what your um, your personal definition of punk is. Uh, apparently, people have many different uh, <laughs> definitions for it. Um, but to me, like it's it's yeah, it's DIY is a part of it. Uh, integrity and the 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 notion of avant uh, garde, you know, like pushing new ideas forward also so uh and i often say that um um my experience with uh uh, punk and i'd say grunge even though i know that's not really a style but uh grunge 
era music uh, has informed my spirituality a lot more than um, or at least equally as, you know, books on Zen and my practice, uh, meditation practice, because this uh, um, this mentality of of being um, honest with oneself is primordial and also to try things out even though they're new and kind of keep an open mind. I don't know if it's, uh, I think I'm looking for, um, for people <laughs> to tell me you are not wrong, punk and mysticism or, you know, like they, they connect very well. Am I wrong, Ronnie? You are not wrong. <laughs> In fact, one of the shocking things. Thank you. <laughs> one of the shocking things for Tamara and I, when we went out there, you know, we left PRS and uh, for a while I've been seen as the heir apparent there. And so it was a kind of a very elite position in metaphysics to be looked at as somebody who might succeed Manly mm -hmm. Hall. And we deliberately, when we went into the next world that we went into, which was hardcore, we became uh, roadies mm -hmm. and, and did lights for a band called Girl Jesus. It was this incredible all-female hardcore band. They were, they were amazing. And, and so we, we thought, we're not going to talk about this stuff. Like We really spent a long time, you know, maybe 20 years, not talking to people about it, although we were still in our own lives studying and practicing. And we really liked that feeling like we thought of it as being something along the lines of zen teachers who work as dishwashers there's a simplicity you know people leave you alone you're not you're not getting into these deep discussions <laughs> about people's issues about around their spirituality or you know they, or they take offense with yours and it just seemed clean mm -hmm. and so off we go into the in the world you would never expect to encounter any and and we kept finding it all over the place and even funnier is what happened when uh when tamara came out with her book about our friendship with manly hall and then all of a sudden all these punk rock people that we had known for, for like years and years were kind of coming out of the closet and saying oh my god well, I love Manly Hall or, um, you know, well, actually, you know, I've been doing uh, Tibetan Buddhism for, you know, this many years. And you remember that tattoo I had? Well, that's where I got it from. And and it turned out that the punk world and the grunge world were filled with people who had spiritual lives and were following various esoteric paths and and sincerely mm -hmm. now they may not have been dedicated scholars but but they were sincerely and privately keeping it to themselves uh following these various spiritual paths so that that's always existed and it it's not a rarity um the weirdest just mm -hmm. briefly um the we had been interested in this this very obscure at that time, ancient Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, uh, the lion-headed uh, goddess of justice. And, and this was something that very few people knew anything about. And we were documenting people that we knew 
who had experiences. And this was before there was a priesthood and a temple and I mean, all the stuff that's happened since. Um, and, and off we go into the world of punk and at key places, key moments, you know, in, in a certain scene that we were in or, or a club when we were on tour where we needed some kind of help or, um, we ran into punks, especially young women, riot girls who had Sekhmet tattoos or Sekhmet stickers they had made themselves or that symbol would show up. And I just remember Tamara, like one person had, uh, this punk girl had, had Sekhmet with her head and her wings on her arm. And Tamara just walked up and, and touched the Sekhmet and looked at her. And the, 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 I mean, the communication that occurred between them was, was, it still gives me chills to think about it because they didn't expect to find that at this place of all places. And there it was, this, this meeting of two people who appreciated Sekhmet at a time when that was exceedingly rare. Uh, this has become a much mm -hmm. more popular goddess since then. I mean, way more popular, but uh, it, it just always surprised us uh, to discover how spiritual punks really are. And when I, the kind of punks I'm talking about, and I'm not saying this is the only definition of punk, but my experience was around mm. Riot Girl, anarcho-punk, uh, you know, Animal Lib crusties, and and the real to me the cream of punk, the Fugazi, mecha normal influenced DIY people mm -hmm. who who were really trying to achieve a, a community. That's that's the thing that really another thing that really blew our minds was it was like PRS you know, in a way it was these idealistic people wow. who were being really kind to each other and getting together to help feed hungry people. And <clears throat> excuse me, it was, it was idealistic, dare I say. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're, you're blowing my mind again because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect, uh, you know, um, you know, like, because I grew up in um, the on the south shore of Montreal, so it's kind of a, you know, Montreal's pretty big, but so we had access to things that were considered uh, a bit more underground. But um, you know, most of the bands you mentioned, like we, we've never heard of them. We some of them got through because of skateboard movies and skateboard. Uh, um uh, magazines and stuff like that but um so you for me you you kind of have this uh behind the scenes or into the scene actually uh look that i didn't really have and uh so uh not to make it too personal but i feel kind of a not a reconciliation but something like that because as i i said my, my spirituality grew out of my punkness and grungeness you know uh and i f i felt and i still kind of do feel a bit alone in that and but the fact that you're mentioning that no 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 people like the punks were into the more than we thought you know like they were into uh occultism and mysticism and spirituality so that's that's wild man that's really cool I don't think they've been, I mean, everything about them for most people is coming through mass media and then some random searches, right? 
And mm-hmm. unfortunately, if you, I, I think if you're, if you weren't in the scene, so in other words, if you're not within the circle of the people on Instagram or Facebook that you met back then, you probably wouldn't have the, the view mm-hmm. of it, of, of when everybody suddenly starts posting their tarot readings and, and, and telling you that they're a Capricorn and, <laughs> and those things really, those were hidden back then. But when social media came around, so much of it finally uh, became visible. And, and when Tamara's book came out, I think it was one of several things that happened that made it seem like it was okay to talk about it. Um, if a riot girl like Tamara is willing to admit that she uh, worked with Manly Hall and, and did all the spiritual stuff and, then you know then it's okay to talk about it and it's 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 silly because but it's a measure of the idealism because these are people in my experience who want so badly to do the right thing who want it's really like they're devoted to buddhist right action and mm-hmm. and right thought and so they they want to to live and to have all their actions display that awareness uh, not not because they're trying mm-hmm. to impress anyone, but they feel like that's what what how you should live, and so they I think have been overly careful about things like that, feeling that that well I shouldn't really talk about my spirituality within the context of punk rock because punk rock is about the rebellion and and the the coming to terms with the facts about what's really going on, mm-hmm. and and so it becomes a they're self-censoring, I guess is what I'm trying to say, I have found, which is so ironic mm-hmm. and so sweet in a way. Uh, the people who are so outgoing and, you know, guys with liberty spikes and, and patches all over their black clothes <laughs> are, are hiding their spirituality because they don't want to inflict it on, on a scene that has political and social and, and uh, you know, local ramifications. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's great. Um, on the subject of punk, yeah, <laughs> uh, and also of DIY, because I've been uh, wondering recently, like, how, where actually this notion of DIY, like, where does it originate from? You know, and because <clears throat> I mean, DIY, do it yourself. The opposite of that would be let everybody do things for you basically you know so i'm wondering if this notion of diy like it came basically with industrialization i guess or at least with specialization um but still like this philosophy the the essence of it um i wonder where it comes from or uh what are the 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 first examples of of deep uh punk diy you know like of course they weren't called that you know well i i would say i mean i'd say it's always been there um it's a split Mm -hmm. between on the one hand let's use spirituality as the example there's always been those who argue that that spiritual redemption can only come through hierarchy and through uh, organized spiritual approaches. There have to be specialists yeah. and you have to submit to the rules. And then there mm-hmm. are, have always been 
the outsiders who insist that they must follow their own path and have their own personal revelation because the official one mm -hmm. for whatever particular reason doesn't work for them. And, and that has been a battle throughout history. Um, you see it in ancient Egypt when Ankhenaten replaces all the state religions with his own monotheistic worship of Aten, the disc of the sun. And that didn't end very well for him or for his son. But the, mm. the stress between those two approaches. Now, of course, with Ankhenaten, there were political reasons why he was making a move like that, trying to free himself from the smothering control of the state priesthoods. But at the same time, he had had a revelation. He wrote a poem, a, a hymn, the hymn to Aten, you know, arguably the first of all the uh, theurgic hymns of, of uh, transformation through addressing the God through song. And, hmm. and then you see it again in Christianity, right, with the Gnostics who there were, you know, of yeah. course, Gnostic churches that were uh, into hierarchies and you had to submit to the bishop and such. But but there were also highly personalized uh, Gnostic cults and uh, that really were emphasizing the individual. And I think you see it in, in ancient Greece. Uh, we talk about this in the book of the magic of the Orphic hymns, because in some sense, mm -hmm. this is the first counterculture in the West. And so we could call it the first punk movement. And the reason I say that is because this was a culture at the time where heroes were worshipped, like Achilles and Odysseus, where men who really wanted to be men longed to die in battle honorably, mm -hmm. and where women didn't have much power in, in Athens, which we all talk about admiringly and with appreciation as the first democracy, women had had no rights, and in fact, if there was a rape that occurred in ancient Athens, it was considered the woman's fault always. And her husband or huh. was compelled to divorce her. And there was a fine paid. So it was not what we think of as democracy, at least for women. So mm -hmm. um, in that world, there was blood sacrifice and the gods demanded that. Now, that was like a barbecue, <clears throat> excuse me, in a way. <clears throat> Very often, sacrificial food was was eaten by the priests and the congregation. It was given to the poor. And it was an important time because people, most people couldn't afford to ever eat beef. And and here you would slaughter mm -hmm. a bull and then the whole community would eat this. Even the the, the poorest among them would, would be able to experience this lavish uh, meal. And Yet the point was that it was done for the gods. These animals were slaughtered. And, and sometimes later in history, like with Emperor Julian, it became ridiculous because the god, you know, the, he felt like, well, you know, why don't we worship, you know, if we're worshiping the gods and they like us to sacrifice, then let's sacrifice a thousand animals because Rome is in trouble and we really need their help. And it, it kind of lost what it meant in a small local sense um, and became this giant like corporate misunderstanding of, of what that transaction was supposed to be like. Um, into that world come the Orphics. 
the followers of Orpheus and they're teaching that the, first of all, no animal sacrifice. The gods are not pleased by killing animals or killing people. So war and being proud of being a hero who slaughtered the enemy is also wrong. Uh, for all you know, mm -hmm. the enemy that you slaughtered or that animal that you slaughtered may have been your loving mother in a past life. So that stuff's right out. Also, we are preparing for death. We're learning how to die. We are getting the passwords that we need to remember so that when we get to the other side, we won't fall again into the what they call the weary wheel of grief, which is probably mm -hmm. reincarnation. And so you felt the sense of, well, you know, you with your hero worship and your slaughter of animals for the gods and you with your sense that, that your future life is really nothing because only heroes achieve a true afterlife. Everybody else is just a ghost flittering around without any sense of self uh, in the mud, basically mm -hmm. in Tartarus. And you're coming along and saying, no, actually, because I don't kill animals and I don't kill people and I don't worship people who do, I am somebody who pleases the gods in the right way and I say the right things. And I, when I die, I'll remember who I am. I'll remember that I'm an eternal soul. The great death passport line, the most famous one was, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but I am of the race of heaven. So there's a whole story behind that involving the Titans and Dionysus, and, and uh, it's quite an ugly myth, but it basically says that human beings are partially titanic, meaning that we're filled with hate and rage and destructiveness and chaos, and this is our physical side but we're also partly Dionysus so that every single one of us in our souls is, is literally the, uh, you could say the grandchild of Zeus, right? Because Zeus was the father of Dionysus. Yeah. And so we have this immortality as, as sort of uh, demigods that's waiting for us to claim if and when we can remember it. And if we can't, then mm -hmm. we're forced to just return over and over again in our ignorance and until we do. So that's a counterculture in a big way. I mean, they were even vegetarian in a society that, that thought meat was a symbol of strength and power. And so mm -hmm. that, I think, is, is maybe the first punk in the West cult, subculture. And it's very interesting because it reappears repeatedly throughout history, as we write about in the book, uh, it's a spark over and over again for countercultures, big ones like the Renaissance, which Orpheus and the Orphic hymns were right in the middle of, uh, with Ficino, kind of mm -hmm. the father of the Renaissance, uh, strumming Orphic hymns and translating them uh, into Latin so that they could be understood again, and, and inspiring people like Botticelli and Da Vinci and... Uh, um, Leon, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici and Cosmo de' Medici and on and on. Poliziano, the great opera singer, Pico della Mirandola, who wrote uh, on the uh, oration on the dignity of man. Um, 
all that with Orpheus at the heart of it. And then over and over again, mm -hmm. every single major culture, subculture, the troubadour uh, counterculture had a character named Sir Orfeo that they used to sing about, uh, was based on Orpheus. And even the Beats, uh, who rejected all mythology as being the discredited science of the past, uh, they were influenced by Cocteau's film on Orpheus. The scene where the poet, yeah. where Orpheus is listening to the radio and getting these random lines for his poems absolutely electrified them. It's very similar to William Burroughs' cut and paste technique, right? Uh, just, just, you know, mm -hmm. cut up pieces of something, spread them around, and then put them back together. And you get these amazing sentences and sometimes even messages. And this was a very similar yeah. technique. So... Yeah, this counterculture thing goes way back. It does exist in industrialization, uh, I would say, in the co-ops, because you start to find industrialized co-ops mm. happen in competition to the factories. And and that would be a, a, a countercultural DIY impulse. And notice, too, that with the Orphix, um, even though you have a priest and you may have an initiation ceremony, we're not sure about that that there is this this sense that you are in charge of it it's not like the eleusinian mm -hmm. mysteries where you go and just once and you get enlightened and now you go off and live your life it's not even like uh, going to the church where you have to go back every week and be told this is what to do you have to live your life uh, exemplifying these rules about not killing uh and about about living a, a pure life. They were even told to wear white, right, to exemplify their purity. And that is so not what mm. the, the Greek heroes of the of Homer were like, right? Yeah. It's super interesting because it's um it brings me back to a question I've um I've had and I've asked also past guests. Um because um Yeah, uh, when we say Orpheus, we think of the gods, and um, personally, it reminds me of um, uh, archetypes in a way. And just bear bear with me for a second sure. uh, of astrology, <laughs> right? And maybe uh, just so people know, you're an A1 uh, astrologer and you know, thank you, you know your shit. So um, I have this question that relates also to um, the book you have uh, written with uh, Tamra of the Orphic, the Orphic Ims. Um, because in that book and well, I mean, in the, in the hymns themselves, Uh, the person who uses them addresses the gods. And where am I going exactly with that? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm gonna frame it that way. Um, so I've had magicians on the show. Uh, already and uh, I did ask one of them a very strange question uh, which was do the gods ever change their minds mm -hmm. and 
I guess my, my question uh, was relating to their will, you know, to a specific w the will of the gods. Um, but my personal experience of what I'd call the gods, at least, uh, feels more coherent with uh, like an archetype, an archetypal model, because this energy, the, these different energies remain the same all the time, you know, like, as uh, what I mean is, you know, like a Martian energy won't become all soft all of a sudden and just all of a sudden become beauty and peace, you know, like it's it just remains what it is. So for me, it's it it's not really relating to an, any notion of will or free will. All that to say <laughs> that whenever I look at the world and what you've described, uh, the, you know, the heroes and the, the, the this accomplishment model mm -hmm. uh, and combativeness model, it's hard for me to see it, although I personally don't very well uh, resonate with it. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to see it as a, like a bad thing or a thing that should be changed because and then comes the astrology. When I look at people around me, I see them as manifestations of, of all those different archetypal um, uh, charges in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. So as much as I as some of them annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a, a, just a bunch of those energies manifested, so for sure it's gonna there's gonna be friction, you know. So I'm not exactly sure what my question is, but I think I, can, I think I can be like I think I can attempt an answer. Go ahead, go ahead. I think you got it across. Cool. Uh, I think there's actually a couple questions in there. Um, the first <laughs> thing I would say is so. One question I hear implicit is, what are we addressing? Are we addressing archetypes? Yeah. Are we addressing gods as individualized beings? Are we addressing egregores, right? Uh, thought forms that have been created by communities of people that take on a life of their own and can manipulate in order to try to increase their power and their longevity. Are we talking about aliens? Yeah. Because there are people who argue that the gods really were aliens. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there are all these different ways that humanity has come up with to view this experience. And my feeling is that all the words for it are inadequate because unfortunately each of them carries a certain flavor of expectation about the experience that I think betrays the experience. So if you're looking at it and you say, mm -hmm. well, this is, this is an archetype, it's not a God. Okay. Now I could tell you some stories about people who've encountered gods who uh, had never, never encountered anything about the God and, or, and it was not an easily available encounter and who were accessed through their dreams in a very direct way that impacted, completely just changed their entire lives trajectory for the rest of their lives. 
And so you could argue, you could get way out on the limb with an archetype and say, well, that was still an archetype from the collective unconscious. But when we get out on those limbs, it seems to me that the words blur to such a degree that it seems like all we're trying to do is avoid admitting that we don't know. It's almost shameful mm -hmm. to not know. So if we're doing the hymns, for instance, when Tamara and I first did them, and we had an experience like doing the hymn to Athena, and we were not doing them from any kind of occult goal, or to us it was an artistic almost uh, performance and in honor of the world we were leaving, PRS, and the world we were about to enter, which turned out to be Riot Girl, but we didn't know it then. And, mm. and yet when we did this, just this gesture to the universe of thanks and, and, you know, please keep watching us, watching over us. We had the experience mm. during the hymn to Athena of a great horned owl showing up in broad daylight in the middle of Hollywood, uh, and landing on the telephone pole nearest to where we were, we were three stories up at a window and sat there while we did the hymn. And then when we finished the hymn, jumped off the telephone pole and swooped right at us and then up and over the building. And mm -hmm. what is that? So is it the egregore of Athena trying to get some worshipers to increase her power? Is it aliens trying to communicate in a, an archaic way? Is it uh, archetypes that that were evoked by us doing this ancient ritual that is so rich with archetypal connotations and the human collective unconscious or was it that athena mm. thought it was cute that we were doing that and she sent an owl in the most improbable place <laughs> and time to let us know that someone was listening and and so mm. we have to live with not knowing there are some people who are magicians and they're out there you know, doing doing it up in a big way and they argue that it's all in the mind right that it's not there aren't really gods out there or archetypes or egregores that that it's all about the human mind but we don't have the uh the ability to recognize what our true powers are so we have to do these games of projection and pretend in order to convince ourselves mm. that we can manifest what we want for example i prefer to take yeah. this stance of saying I don't know. Now, I, I have seen, I can look back on my life as many people can and see what I consider to be the presence of the gods. And, and you can see it almost like a symbolism that is woven through your life. And, and mm -hmm. that's often why people, when they encounter the God that moves them, feel moved because they feel like this presence has been watching over them when they didn't even know that it existed. That experience mm -hmm. is a great mystery. And when we try to pin it down to a word, we forget that when you're dealing with that kind of mystery, words are hopelessly inadequate. Now, if we can just mm -hmm. use the word as a sort of shorthand, the way that in Judaism you use uh, yod heh vov -Hey as the symbol of the great God, that's just a reminder. It's like, that's what we're talking about, but words aren't sufficient. So here's a little symbol to remind us all that, that we don't really understand this mystery that's so far beyond us. Madame Blavatsky mm -hmm. used to say that 
uh, she said that you never even encounter a God. She's like, you, you know, puny humans, you think you could, you could in <laughs> any way with your monkey brain down there, be able to encounter the consciousness of a God. And she said that really yeah. when you're encountering what you think is God, you're encountering your own higher soul or your higher self, right? Maybe that's true, mm -hmm. but I would still apply to that. My, my criteria, which is you don't know, maybe she did, but but the mystery, I think respecting the mystery allows the experience to keep its innocence. And so you often find, whether it's in spiritualism or theurgy or all sorts of places in the spiritual path, that people who begin by playing around with it, who have a playful attitude toward it and are in the joy of discovery, that they have much better results than they do when they get real serious about it. And some people mm -hmm. get lost when they get really serious about it, I think, because they get so deeply into the details of, of, of exactitude and, and tradition and, mm -hmm. and every single aspect that, that they forget why they're there, which is to have this mm -hmm. transcendent experience. And the intellectual uh, rigor can be a, a block to uh to having that experience i think ultimately if we get lost yeah. in the intellectualisms of it all mm -hmm. i've i've noticed that a lot around me i think it uh yeah i've seen uh, we probably all have examples of both like people getting too rigid in their in their um discipline and traditions and other people who would just kind of float around and pick what they like and they but they never really confront themselves with anything you know so i'm guessing the the um the path that's most alive i wouldn't call it the best path but the, the one that's that uh, that that uh conveys the more life energy is the one where you're just flexible i guess Yeah, and it's there from the beginning. I mean, if you look at, at, at uh, the Tao Te Ching, there it is, right? It says, the way that can be named is not the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The way is always adjusting. And I would argue that the gods, do the gods change if they want to? <laughs> I mean, if they exist and they, and they want to change, certainly yeah, they yeah. can. I would say, and I know that there's the whole platonic argument about the unchangeability of the forms and all that, but I would even give you an example from Aries. I mean, it, although his nature uh, doesn't fundamentally change, let's we got to remember that that nature uh, brought Aries into uh, a relationship with Aphrodite, right? And so he wasn't mm -hmm. all about fighting. Mm -hmm. And then there's that famous story from the Iliad about how of course he's supporting the trojan side and his sister athena is supporting the uh greek side and and they're both really gods of war so what happens when they meet and homer actually shows us this which uh, begins with Ares running across the battlefield in rage Uh, to take athena out of the battle because she has succeeded in helping the greeks get an advantage And she just stands there watching him. She doesn't move at all. And he just keeps running at her in full rage, screaming. And 
when he reaches just the right point, all she does is she flips up the butt end of her spear and he runs right into it forehead first. And he's knocked out cold. <laughs> That's a pretty passive Aries at that mm. point. And Homer even has him run up to Olympus when he wakes up and say to Zeus, that, did you see what she did to me? That is no fair. And Zeus responds with, no, she, she bested you. You know, don't, don't, don't <laughs> act like she didn't. And so the gods, they learn from their mistakes. They, 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 they seem to have evolving relationships with humanity. So for example, Sekhmet, who had a pretty uh, defined role in ancient Egypt as the protector of the Pharaoh, the protector of Ma'at, the balance that makes being possible, um, the uh, guardian of books. Uh, her priests were healers who kind of combined a few medical techniques with shamanistic techniques. And, and that was, you know, about it. Now she had a big party once a year, which was like a giant festival of music and intoxication and, and all sorts of things happened there. Children were not allowed, let's put it that way. And, <laughs> and so, uh, and that's about, but that was about it. That's about all we know. Well, now, uh, in the research that Tamara and I have done on this goddess and on practitioners um, into her, she's seen as a, a, as a loving mother, a, a very merciful goddess, somebody who uh, encourages her followers to learn to, to face their fears and, and to accept uh, their graces and their blessings. And uh, very, it, there's like an evolution that's gone on in the way that this goddess is, is presented which is, you know, the Egyptians had an actual canon. I mean, this, this is how Sekhmet looked. She has to look like this every single time and pretty much did according to the abilities mm -hmm. of the artists. But today, if you go on eBay or anywhere, Etsy, and you look up Sekhmet, you're going to see some traditional ones. You're going to see sexy babes, Sekhmets, you know, dressed up in two little clothes. You're going to see horrifying, mm -hmm. vicious, angry Sekhmets destroying the planet Earth like it's a paper cup. And, you know, there's just this reimagining going on in all of these different ways. So mm -hmm. um, now that you know, maybe that's just a human imagination running with it, of course. But if we want to keep open the idea that this is the deity, then maybe what's happening is the deity is reaching out to people according to the needs of the time, right? So yeah. back then this was appropriate. Right now there's a death metal band in Sweden called Sekhmet. And there really is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so that's, I think, um, one way to look at it. Like, like maybe this is a fluid relationship of, of something going on here. And then the other question mm. is about the planets and, and the archetypes and, and what kind of, uh, are they fateful? Uh, you know, looking at the planets and, and thinking, well, if this is how this is comported, this combination, then this is what it's going to be. Like you were saying, you know, Aries, you know, like in, now we're talking about Aries, but now let's talk about Mars. Mars is always going to be Mars, right? As you said, it mm -hmm. signifies a very specific thing. And, yeah. and so the, the way I look at it is first, I see the aspects as being spectrums because I've experienced this. I'll give you the example of, let's say, something like a moon square Saturn. 
mm-hmm. you would normally look at that and think, oh, that's not going to be a fun time. Uh, maybe it's a good time for me to do some work or do my chores or get some rest or meditate, you know, trying to look for this combination mm-hmm. of the moon and Saturn. But I've had amazing experiences during moon square Saturn um, involving Tamara, my wife, Moon, who's a Capricorn, Saturn, and who has the Saturnian qualities of being hilarious. And, um, you know, there, there's like, there's another side of Saturn there that is something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the meditation, the discipline, the simplicity, the wit, the sarcasm, the, the, all those Saturn qualities. And, and so I've found that and this is also true of the signs, not just the planets. It kind of depends mm-hmm. on the attainment level of the person. So if this is a person who doesn't have attainment and who is a, a, like I used to be when I was a kid, when my first band, a liar, a, a cheat, somebody violent, somebody who, who loves disillusioning people and hurting people and... Mm-hmm. And this, you know, that person is going to experience the bad parts of even good aspects, because even a great aspect, like let's say today's mm-hmm. Venus, I believe it's Venus sextile or trine Uranus, um, it can have bad effects because a, a good aspect can cause somebody to become over optimistic or to overindulge in ways that are harmful to them or to others or to take a risk that has a bad result because they were just feeling so high on themselves that they thought that they could do anything. And, mm-hmm. and so, but if you're somebody who has a level of attainment, then even bad aspects can be very positive for you. And they sometimes almost bring you gifts. I feel like if you've properly learned your lesson involved in this particular planet, let's say that, that when a bad aspect involving that planet comes around, it's almost like the planet gives you a present. Like, well, you know this, you don't have to take this test. So here's something mm-hmm. that represents me that's that's fun, some, some serendipitous moment. It can be something silly, like a certain movie coming on that is, is just the right thing for you to see at that moment. And it's one of your favorites while everybody else is filled with angst hanging on the latest news you're sitting in front of your favorite movie, <laughs> getting your soul enriched, right? So yeah. that that's one thing about it. And then the other thing I would say about the planets is that they are, oh, what I was going to say is, by the way, the signs are the same, that, that if you look at a sign and you want to see the differences between them, you're better off looking at lower levels of attainment, because when you start to reach the higher levels of attainment, they all start to resemble each other. Their virtues are all similar, um, but their mm-hmm. their vices can be very different. So, you know, a Torian, let's say, who's uh, famously lazy and, and self-indulgent and uh, addicted to security and, uh, you know, is very stubborn about, about their opinion, mm-hmm. is going to show you more of those bull traits than, than somebody, uh, a Torian of very high attainment, who's going to have those virtues of patience and grace and, and you know, empathy and all these, these things that happen as the soul awakens. And so mm-hmm. uh, now, as far as the planets, rather than thinking of them as impelling us to do things, I like 
the explanation that Plotinus gave. Um, he was a Roman Neoplatonist, and he has this beautiful quote, which was about the planets, which he described as signposts. And he says that that everything breathes together, right? So to him, mm -hmm. yes, they, these were gods, but they were breathing with us. It's, it's like weather. It's always changing. Yeah. And so it's not that they make us do things. It's that, that we reach a kind of weather astrologically in which those kinds of things tend to occur. Mm -hmm. I love that you, you use the, just at the end like that, you use that term uh, weather because uh, I wrote a book, uh, I published a, uh, my first book in last June and I was, I talked about uh, astrology, but mostly um, what I would suggest uh, one should ask themselves before giving into astrology you know like what the astrologer says or what the planet says you know and uh just ask those questions and i i i called it uh archetypal weather basically mm -hmm. that's great and yeah. I, i'm starting to realize that archetype might not be a very good word it's it's more like foundational principles Um, mm -hmm. or, you know, like I, I kind of equate it to, uh, uh, the light, uh, there's also another chapter that's called, uh, dark side of the moon because of the, the album cover and that principle of uh, that, uh, sorry, that, that concept or that image, mm -hmm. <laughs> sorry, uh, of the light coming into the, the prism, uh, the, the crystal, and then just sp splitting into the different colors um which are the first manifestation of a, a pure form of energy in a way mm. so i'm guessing that you know like our colors archetypes you know <laughs> so maybe it's maybe it's even more uh primordial than mm -hmm. archetypes are actually mm -hmm. But it reminds me of um, a thing I've read in um, uh, many years ago uh, in an Alice Bailey <laughs> book mm -hmm. very long time ago. And I read that um, astrology, well, I guess it's pretty much what you just said, but maybe you can, you have, you can develop on that or um, that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly what you said. Well, it's, but here's another thing to add to it. Um, yeah, go ahead. In, in ancient Greece, for example, <laughs> the idea was that when we're using some form of uh, a system like astrology or any kind of omenry or oracular system, that what we're doing mm -hmm. is we're, we're asking for the gift of the vision of the gods. The gods can see what will happen. Mm -hmm. And so when we use astrology to see what's going to happen or to see into someone's soul, we're borrowing the vision of the gods. It's a gift from the gods to help us to see what they can see, to give us a little glimpse when we need it. And I like mm -hmm. that aspect of it. I know there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with bringing a spiritual practice or commitment into astrology. There's a lot of people who want to treat it like it's a science and and remove 
yeah. that element of it. But, but just for me, I love that sense that that it's a ladder or a tool that we've been given so that we can get a little bit of that vision that the God has. Mm-hmm. I guess that uh, it could be annoying to some people also because what does it leave? Uh, where does it leave uh, free will? You know, like, uh, oh, the gods know what's going to happen. So you, you can ask them what's going to happen, but essentially... <laughs> you don't have much power over that. Well, you, you do in a sense of controlling your, where you're going to be on the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, yeah. the God can give you the glimpse of what's likely to happen, not what's going to happen. And yeah. you can see that glimpse. It's just the same as you can, you know, you can be doing your, I mean, maybe somebody somewhere was doing their, their chart on 9-11, right? And they went, mm. they said, wow, I don't like the way this looks. Okay, well, you know what? I'm not going to go there. Now, maybe the God showed them through the chart that had they gone, they would die. But Mm -hmm. they decide not to go because they see that this is dangerous weather. And so they change the trajectory of fate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the tool is for. It's so that you can look at someone's chart. You know, how many times have, as, if you're into astrology, people want you to look at the chart and say, is this person good for me? Every once in a while, you do find a situation where you say, you need to be careful about this. And, and sometimes it is a situation where they need to be careful. So there again, mm-hmm. you get a glimpse at, a, at what could be a very dark future, but getting that glimpse changes the future. Mm-hmm. Wow, we're going to start wrapping up soon, but uh, I wanted to um, maybe just end on a kind of a transcendental note or something. I'm not sure how to put it. Uh, I heard you mention uh, um, something that uh, Manly P. Hall said to you about... um, Uh, meditation mm-hmm. and I, the the link between what we've been saying uh, in the last few uh, minutes is that all of this can drive one per uh, mad actually when we start to consider all the, the all of these things what should I do what am I fated to do and you know like it, it can drive someone completely mad Um, to me, like it got to the point where it, I went to the opposite. I, I experienced, uh, uh, I'll call them transcendental events or not enlightening events. I don't know how to call it, but experience, experience of the numinous and the, the wordless, you know, mm-hmm. and it pushed me into a form of nihilism that I think it might be, uh, different than what some people describe uh it just all of this like it drove me into like a in non-decisiveness and a form of apathy mm-hmm. oh yeah and, i get that you know procrastination i guess right you know? well you got all eternity so, you got all eternity <laughs> yeah well it's it's that but then you're also in your in this physical Yeah. Uh, vehicle and in this experience so you like you're like i can't j- it doesn't make sense you know like to 
just say, well, I'm eternal, you know, so I don't have to do anything. It's, I think it's I'm, the I'm balance. Still, yeah, but I still want to. Uh, it's a balance yeah. situation because you need both. So mm -hmm. you, you, you have these unique opportunities and conditions of the moment that are always changing. And when they slip away, a favorite pet, a friend, you know, your, your best job, whatever, when something mm -hmm. that you love slips away and it's gone from your life, it's a traumatic experience for human beings. And it reminds us to cherish these humble details of day-to-day -day life and those we share them with. And so we need that side of it. We need the grounding side. We need the side of, of I don't procrastinate because in this moment, I have these opportunities and I'm going to do them because that, mm -hmm. that's what belongs to this moment. And I want to live this moment to the fullest and the next one and the next one. Mm -hmm. And... And, but you also need the other side because when you do immerse yourself in the details of life, there are always moments that are overwhelming. And there's also just the moments of fate where there's you know events that occur that, that affect millions of people and there's really not anything that, that an individual can do about it except how they're going to choose yeah. how they're going to react. And so mm -hmm. the... You need at those times, whether it's just a personal thing, like like the thing you're working on goes terribly wrong or a relationship that, that departs or a situation like a catastrophe that has to be dealt with, the, the, the ability to get into that eternal place, to be able to remind yourself, okay, you know, yeah, this is a, this is a very important situation. I need to react the right way, but I'm so much bigger than this. And this is just one moment in my life and how I react mm -hmm. here can help other people. And so I'm going to do something here that's worthy of my awareness. And it's in the balance. I think that we mm -hmm. find the real beauty of life because the eternal side of our souls, which I would suggest is, are, is the part that isn't involved in keeping <clears throat> the body functioning and organized and <clears throat> sustained through time. It's the part that is observing this whole process and is usually forgotten by human beings. But when it's mm -hmm. awake, then you look at this life and you're just, first of all, you understand what a mystery it is because you still don't know what it is. People compare it to a game or the matrix. Or these are, again, this, these are metaphors. But what this is and why we're here, even though there's some great answers to that, we aren't really sure. But what we mm -hmm. are sure about is the opportunities that we take or that we miss, the people that we love or that we need to get away from. There are, there are these particularities that life brings before us, like a series of tests that teach us about ourselves mm -hmm. and about life and about nature. And, and so we can, by, by oscillating between these two polarities, between the side that is, is all in the details of day-to-day -day living and the side that finds it hard to be interested in them, ironically, you can achieve this great awareness of cherishing those moments and seeing the beauty and the wisdom in them. 
So like astrology, mm-hmm. you can look at it and say, how in the world does this work? The mystery of this thing of, of when, you know, I'm still shocked when I read people's charts or I do a weekly chart mm-hmm. and people come back to me and they say, wow, you called that so exactly. I mean, I'm still, part of me still goes, how does that happen? How amazing that these these symbols <laughs> that come to us from way back in Assyria and Babylon, they work. And, and, we're, and then how does it work that there are these different kinds of astrology that don't even agree with each other? So in, in one of them, my, my, my Mars might be in the first house and another one, it might be in the, in the second, but when practitioners of those different kinds of astrology that see the sky so differently do the chart, they come up with some great stuff. How does that happen? So by being yeah. aware of those mysteries and also being grateful, so there again, the idea that, well, somehow I'm being given a glimpse of the vision of the gods. Maybe that's my own vision of my higher self, from my higher self, of, of what the world is really like. Um, but having that appreciation mm-hmm for those experiences and for those who share this moment in space time with us unites Mm. these two sides right then they're together because you are paying attention to the details in the best possible way but you're not procrastinating because you're enjoying being here and doing all of this even drudgery takes on the quality of prevention from harm and meditation, right? You know, that that was a big one for me. I always hated uh, drudgery, r- repetitive household tasks and such. But when you get that into your head, that, that you are preventing harm for yourself and those you love, and that you are also providing yourself with an opportunity to meditate as you, as you follow each step of the task, then it becomes actually a wonderful practice. Yeah, exactly. I I started with uh, this this. I didn't say what it was, but uh, that story uh, you you told about Manly P. Hall uh, saying that he was basically maintaining that um, meditative quality all, all the time, or at least he was working on that and trying. Yeah. I'm guessing he was pretty good at it, but yeah, no, and for it, sure it's, he was. It reminds me of a oh sorry. Well, he, it's, yeah, it's I, I, the Zen you know, walking meditation. And he, he said that, that he had, he had long, yeah, that he had long since achieved the ability to be in that state of meditation, no matter what he was doing. So he could be working on a book. He could be talking to somebody. He could be having fun at home, having something for dessert. He could be eating a hamburger he wasn't supposed to eat. Whatever he was doing, he was bringing mm-hmm. that higher consciousness to it. And I definitely saw, I, I mean, I don't know if they're connected. I thought they were. These, the, the condition that he was moving in, this Taoist kind of higher awareness and the propensity for synchronicity around him. There was constantly mm-hmm. synchronicities going on. My arrival at PRS and the job that he gave me as editor of the Alchemical Bibliography was a synchronicity. I showed up right when he needed me. I wasn't, I had no idea I was the right person. There was no reason to think I was the right person, but it turned out I was the right person and it totally changed my life. And he would constantly do that kind of thing. Even in lectures, he did it to me and to Tamara, but often to others 
many people told us that he would look right at them and he would say something that was really like a personal message to some deep part of self. And, and mm -hmm. he, I later found out, couldn't really see the people because his vision was pretty bad by then that he was delivering these messages to. But every Sunday morning for a dollar, you could go sit there at 11 o'clock in the morning and listen to him for 90 minutes. And, and he would deliver these messages to people when they needed to hear them, uh, along with a great lecture about something that everyone enjoyed and could, could learn something useful from. So yeah, he was definitely mm -hmm. in the mode. And you know, people have asked me, well, he had such a rough ending and he seemed to be used by somebody who may have even murdered him, but certainly seems to have been trying to uh, cheat him and, and how come he didn't know what was happening. And if he was really in that higher consciousness, uh, wouldn't he, if he, he have mm -hmm. avoided it. And I don't have the answer to that. I mean, my own personal feelings about it are that he did know what he was getting into on a level. He took mm -hmm. out somebody who was a very harmful person who caused a lot of suffering, uh, not just there, but in previous, uh, things that he had, he had become involved in. And, and I think that maybe there was a way in which Manley Hall understood that by embracing this fate that he was going out the way he was meant to, but he was also going to prevent this guy from going on and, and wreaking havoc elsewhere. And I also think mm -hmm. that he may have just felt that, well, this is where I'm being taken by the Tao. Uh, he may not have not, uh, fully understood it, although he left hints here and there that he did seem to understand what was happening. He once referred mm -hmm. to the guy as the Lord High Executioner. So, I mean, he he knew something was going on. And, and, and I think he had a kind of fatalistic attitude of, this is the end of my life. This guy is here doing what he's doing. And uh, yeah, I'll see where this takes me. I'm just following life, mm -hmm. leading me down the path. And what karma caused that, you know, we'll never know, but he probably does it by now. And it's, mm -hmm. it's something that uh, when people have that quality of that walking meditation, everything they do reflects it. Yeah. It's not about our conceptions of what would be self-preservation or good or bad or it's more about what's what has i don't have words <laughs> I, I i think it's better not to put words on that okay. <laughs> <laughs> whoa okay sorry okay um all right listen i think i kept you long enough we're at an hour <laughs> 27 uh we didn't talk about the golden flower we didn't talk about eating we didn't talk about a whole lot of things that i wanted to i knew that it would happen like that you're the kind of person that when i start looking into their work i'm like really 90 minutes <laughs> <laughs> so well i'm happy you know, to come i back. try to not happy to come back all right if yeah. you like that's i'm always happy to talk about those subjects I'd love it. I'd love it. Um, all right, uh, Ronnie, you sent me you sent me some li links. Sorry, where uh, people can find your work. But is there any 
any and there will be in the comments and the show notes and all that stuff cool. but is there anything specific you want people to uh you want point people to <laughs> Um, if you want to reach me, the best place is probably Instagram or threads, uh, at the Ronnie Pontiac. And I do have a couple classes coming up. Um, they're not being publicized mm -hmm. as yet, but they'll be happening in spring one for the last Tuesday society and another for the, uh, American theosophical society. And they'll both be going into great depth. Uh, about Orpheus and the death passports and all the mysteries within the Orphic mysteries. That's amazing. Something not to miss. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you again, Ronnie. Uh, that's been, it's been great. Um, especially all those discussions about punk and DIY relating to mysticism and it's something I've, I'm aching to develop and have those conversations with people because I I feel there's something important in there and I it feels like uh, yeah with your great experience uh, you seem to agree that there's something there definitely so that was great for thank you for me uh, And I'm sure it will be great for people. So uh, we're going to leave it at that for today. But yeah, uh, we could do that again. Anytime. Uh, eventually, for sure. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again, mm -hmm. Ronnie. Bye. <laughs> So you've made it to the end of this Hopscotch Chronicles podcast episode, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed doing it. And I thank you so much for your attention, and I hope you, uh, you're benefiting in a way or another from this conversation. So if you'd like to follow my work, whether on this podcast or my uh, personal work, you can go to Twitter or X and follow me at Domi underscore Valet, D-O-M-I underscore Valet. Same username for uh, Instagram, if you prefer that platform. You can also go to the official website for the podcast, which is hopscotchchronicles.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast as well as my personal work, you can do so by subscribing to my Patreon The address is patreon.com slash Dominique Vallée, D-O-M-I-N-I-C Vallée, V-A-L-L-E-E. -E. There you'll find video and audio versions of the, uh, the episodes without any commercials, as well as special episodes on every Sunday where I take my Sunday afternoon tea with you guys. All right, thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep reaching for the light. Mm -hmm.